Yes, we were looking into the Gospel of John this morning, first chapter, the introductory paragraph, and there we saw that all truths concerning the Son of God, the Saviour, are already announced, which then are followed up throughout the whole Gospel. And tonight we are going to turn to the Apostle Paul and to see how he explains the work of Christ. The gospel give us the gospels give us the fact of salvation. The salvation which Christ wrought on the cross. The fact. You have the facts, the historical facts in the gospels. And then in uh, Acts, then you have the, uh, the history of that message of salvation which Christ worked on the cross, how that message is proclaimed and how it spreads throughout the whole world. And then we have the epistles. And the epistles, they explain to us the meaning of Christ's life, Suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. So we are going to look into the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Now we had um, already noted how Paul, in the, in the opening verses in Romans 1 tells us right from the beginning that the gospel is about God's Son. Romans 1, 1, 2, 3. Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. And then comes his human nature, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and who was declared the Son of God with power. Son of David, Son of God. True man and true God. And Paul here then shows in Romans how everything, justification, sanctification, glorification, it is all through Christ. All through him, all based on his work and on his continuing working for us. We will see that then in chapter 8, how he is interceding for us at the right hand of God. To uh, keep us in the faith, to keep us on the way through this world of sin and to bring us home safely. Now, Romans is a glorious treatise on the gospel of God. The theme of Romans is given in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then comes an explanation how that can be. How can the gospel of God become the power of God for sinners unto salvation? And then he explains in verse 17, for, that is the reason, because in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. So it means the salvation which God works is according to his righteousness. It is God working, and in all his works he remains the unchanged, righteous, and of course gracious God. And when he acts in grace, he still acts in righteousness. He never forsakes his righteousness. Never. Because that would mean that he, had to, he would have to cease to be God if he would go against his righteousness. But that can't be. So when God is gracious and in grace saves men, he acts in righteousness at the same time. So that is the great theme of Romans, the righteousness of God. Righteousness of God. And um, we can even subdivide Romans under headings, under, I have uh, divided Romans into five, five parts, and they go like this. First part God's righteousness is revealed in his wrath over all iniquity. That's how Paul begins. God's righteousness is revealed in his wrath over all iniquity. Chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. And then Paul, he proves then from 1.18 to 3.20 the truth of his uh, opening statement here. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And all men do that. Live in unrighteousness by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And therefore God's wrath is over them. And it shows itself in the way Paul then shows in the chapters 1, 2, and 3. Till, and not, not the whole chapter 3. It is till 3.20. And then comes the second part. God's righteousness is revealed in the justification of everyone who believes. And that seems contradictory. How can God reveal his righteousness, righteousness on one hand by revealing his wrath against the sin of man? and then reveal his righteousness by declaring sinful man righteous. How can that be? How can that be? So that's part two. God's righteousness is revealed in the justification of everyone who believes. 3.21 to 4.25. That's part two. Then comes part three. God's righteousness is revealed in the preservation of the believer, of the preservation of the one justified. Chapters 5 to 8. 5 through 8. This is the, the theme, the idea that runs through all those chapters, from 5 to 
8 at the end. How the righteous, the one who has become righteous, whom God has declared righteous um, by faith, by his faith, how God is keeping him, carrying him through to glory. And then, fourth part, God's righteousness is revealed in the salvation of the people of Israel. That's very important. One could almost think that after Romans 8, verse 39, now the gospel has been explained. So we can make a full stop here. All is said. All said. What about God's ancient people? Can God forget his promises to that? His ancient people? So Romans 9 through 11 show how God reveals his righteousness in dealing with, in saving Israel. God's righteousness is revealed in the salvation of the people of Israel, chapters 9 till 11. And only then he has ended his treatise now on the doctrine of the gospel. And then, fifth part, God's righteousness is revealed in the righteous walk of the believer. And that's chapters 12 to the end of the epistle. So we see this runs through as the, as the ruling theme, the righteousness of God. The wrath of God, part one, just two, three observations before we are going to, in part two then, to, to, to look into text a little bit more closely. So in part one, God's righteousness is revealed in his wrath over all iniquity. And this opening assertion, Paul is proving it, showing us first that the Gentiles, under sin, living in sin, God's wrath is over them. He gives them over to their uh, impure passions and desires. And then, Chapter 2 till, yes, chapter 2 till 3 8, he shows that the Jews likewise, God's uh, wrath is over the unrighteousness of the Jews, no difference. And this leads up to, his, to a, 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 this summary statement in chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we, that is the Jews, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both the Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Under sin. Under the power of sin. Unable to get rid of sin. To get free from sin. Under sin. And then, of course, he gives a scriptural proof all quotations from the Old Testament about the total depravity of man that he is truly under sin. And Paul concludes this um, first part with the verses 19 and 20, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that is to the Jews, so that every mouth may be stopped or closed and all the world 
may become accountable to God. That is, that they come under God's judgment. If the Jews, by the law, or if by the law the mouth of the Jews is stopped, then the mouth of all the world is stopped. The Jews, and with that nation, God proves how man is, how all mankind is. Accountable to God, bound up to his judgment, verse 20, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. So no man, no flesh can achieve righteousness by his own striving and doing. And then comes part two. God's righteousness is revealed in the justification of everyone who believes. Verse 21, but now, but. And if you have read or heard Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching through Romans, this is one of those glorious buts of God. But God, under sin, all is lost. Man, left to himself, All is lost. No hope. No escape. But God. And then Paul, he explains how God in his righteousness acts. How he has worked in Christ, through Christ. So that he can justify the sinner and himself remain just in doing it act in righteousness when he clears the guilty. And that is wonderful. That's just glorious. It is so unutterably glorious how he could do that. And this is what Paul now explains. But now apart from the law, I'm going to read till verse 26. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Here we have it again. This is the theme running through all of Romans. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Yes, as God reveals his righteousness in judging the sinner, he reveals his righteousness in justifying the sinner. How can that be? 
Now all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, justified as a gift, freely justified by grace through redemption. So someone has had to fulfill all God's righteousness. God's righteousness has been satisfied. All righteousness has been fulfilled by the life and the death of the Lord Jesus. His active righteousness, his living an absolutely righteous life under the law, and then his passive righteousness, namely his bearing all consequences of the breaking of the law for the lawbreaker. He became, he took the curse of the law upon himself when he was crucified. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 13. Galatians 3. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And there he fulfilled the passive, in a passive way, the righteousness of God. Passive means suffering. He party, let him party to suffer. His passion, that is his suffering. And passive, that is sufferingly. He suffered all the consequences of the law-breaking. Though he had never broken the law. As our substitute. And then Paul, he explains it a, a little more, how to say, graphically. In verse 25. He says then of Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. We cannot say atonement. I prefer atonement. I'm not going to explain it now. You'll hear it then. As a propitiation or atonement in his blood. Now here, the word propitiation. The Greek doesn't use the term propitiation here. It uses another term, namely, hilasterion. And that word occurs only twice in the New Testament. The other place is Hebrews chapter 9. And there it is uh, translated differently. Hebrews 9 verse 5. The author is speaking about the tabernacle. First, the, the, uh, the, the holy place, then the holy of holies. And then it says about the holy of holies that there was, verse 5, Above it, that is the Ark of the Covenant, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. That is the hilasterion, the same word, hilasterion, mercy seat. And this is the term, this is the term taken from the Old Testament. 
You have the Ark of the Covenant, and then you have the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, and that covering is called, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, hilasterion. And that is in, in uh, Hebrew, kaporet, from the verb kafar, and kafar means to atone. And kaporet, the covering was called a kaporet because on that covering, blood was sprinkled when? On the day of atonement, as we say. That is in Leviticus 3, verse 16. Yes, so uh, just to make the connection between the day of atonement and the atoning blood on, on, on the uh, covering of the Ark of the Covenant, therefore it would be uh, more felicitous to uh, translate Romans 3.25 with atonement and not propitiation. So uh, let's turn to Leviticus 16. Verse 14. Or we read from verse 11 on. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his household, and shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a firepan full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, also in the front of the mercy seat, in front of the mercy seat shall he sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. And then he does the same thing with a goat of sin offering for the people. Verse 15, then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering which is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And here the Greek translation always has hilasterion, Hebrew kaporet. Now, the interesting thing is, firstly, the word hilasterion itself. Uh, those who know some Greek maybe have uh, noted that. That nouns ending in erion are always places. Places. Erion are places. Like in the New Testament, you have desmoterion. That's the place where a desmos, and that is a prisoner, sits. That is a desmoterion. You have that in Matthew 11, verse 2. John the Baptist in prison in the desmoterion, the place of the desmos. Or 2 Corinthians 5, verse 2, Paul speaks about the habitation, heavenly habitation which awaits us. And he says, oiketerion, oikein, to dwell, oiketerion, place of dwelling. So, hilasterion is the place of hilasmos, and hilasmos is atonement. So, Paul is speaking about a place where atonement occurred, where atonement happened. And Luther, he has translated it very neatly, he has translated Romans 325, 
God has put forth Christ as einen Gnadenstuhl. And that is the word used in the Old Testament for the, the covering of the ark. That was the place where atonement happened under God's eyes. And now God, he has done a wonderful, a marvelous thing. Quite marvelous. And that is a glorious contrast between the Old and the New Testament. How was it on the Day of Atonement? Where did that sprinkling of the blood happen? In the most holy place. The most holy place. And that was hidden from the sight of everybody. Nobody saw it but the high priest and God. But now, Paul, he says, Romans 3, 25... Whom Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as the mercy seat, as the place of atonement. And where did that happen? That happened outside the gates of Jerusalem on the hill of Golgotha, on Calvary Hill, publicly, under the eyes of all Jerusalem, seeing it. And that is the place where you have to go if you want to find atonement for your sins. That is the place of atonement. Now that is of course history, but it has happened in history. And how is that place now being made accessible for people who live in our age and our time? Through the preaching of the gospel. And what, or rather, whom do we preach? Christ. His life, his perfect life, his suffering, his death for our sins. And we do as Paul do. We portray Christ as painted before the eyes of people. So they see him, Christ, and then they can run to him. There is atonement found for everyone who believes. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Galatians 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? So God has acted in righteousness in condemning his son and God acts in righteousness because he, his son took our sin upon himself and he has acted in righteousness and acts in every time in righteousness when a person who believes in Christ when God clears him from his guilt and declares him righteous. And thus he displays, as Paul says, his own righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 26. For the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would justify and so, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this makes God exactly what God says of himself 
through the prophet Isaiah. Where is another God, a just God and a Savior? A just God and a Savior. Is it chapter 45, verse 19? Uh, 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 um, let's try and find it and read it. Or is it 42? No. All right, I don't find it now. So he is a righteous God and a Savior. And Paul explains how that can be. Now Paul had said in uh, 321, 321, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. <laughs> Why does Paul say that? You see, the Jews, they were always telling, he's, he's, that's new doctrine. That's against the faith of our fathers. That is a newfangled religion. And therefore, Paul, he proves all his statements in this epistle by quoting the Old Testament. And having said that the righteousness of God has been witnessed the righteousness through faith has been witnessed by the law and the prophets, he's going to prove it. And he does that in chapter 4. And he calls two witnesses. And they are great ones, great witnesses. Great names for every Jew, Abraham and David. But we are not going to enter into this now. So Abraham proves, Abraham believed uh, God and that was accounted imputed unto him for righteousness. And then David, who uh, the same way was declared righteous because of his faith. Then comes the third part, namely, God's righteousness is revealed in the preservation of the believer, chapters 5 through 8. And since Christ has satisfied all the righteousness of God, the justified cannot fail to be kept until the day of glorification. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you must mark this. It is not peace in our hearts. That's what always peace is. I need peace in my heart. Jesus gives you peace into your heart. Well, he can do that, yes. But this is not what Paul speaks about here. We have peace with God. That means we have entered into an entirely new relationship with God. And that is an objectively, in the front of God, under God's eyes, present fact. 
Christ has satisfied all righteousness of God, fulfilled all righteousness of God, and he who believes on him, he has therewith entered into a new relationship with God himself. And that relationship is peace. And that is the contrary of the place where we began. Where did we begin? We were all under the wrath of God. We were all under the wrath of God, chapter 118. We were all enemies of God, chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, but now there is peace, not enmity between God and man and man and God, peace. And that is a relationship which is established through the work of Christ and that relationship none can alter. So that makes everything secure. Through and with justification, the believer is secured. There is nothing that God holds against him anymore. Nothing. And therefore Paul can continue... Through our Lord Jesus Christ, it is always through him. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, always through him. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, so, or by whom we have access. We have access to that grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Kauchaumai. Kauchaumai. That is a, a, a verb Paul uses very frequently. Kauchaumai. And usually it's translated we boast. We boast in the fact. In what fact? We boast in the fact that we shall be glorified. Of course we rejoice in it. But the text, the Greek text says, kauchaumai. That's the verb used. We boast in the fact. We rühmen uns, the German says. Uh, the king, three times. We have a threefold boasting in verses 1 through 11. This is the first boasting. We boast, we glory. This is how King James translates it. Translates it. Translates it. We glory in this knowledge and in this faith and um, in, in the hope of the glory of God. And then verse 3, not only this, but we also exult or we glory in our tribulations, or as the Greek says, kauchaumai, we boast. So even when uh, tribulations come, our mouth is not stopped that our boasting suddenly whoop, is gone. We still boast in this assurance of coming glory. And then verse 11, and not only this, but we also exalt or boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. So we glory in God, we uh, exult in God, we boast in God. 
And that means God is our God. And God is now no more against us. Paul says, if God be for us, who can then be against us? He is now for us. But let's uh, return briefly to his first boasting. Verse 2, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Yes, it is the hope of the glory of God. We are not yet in glory. But hope is not something in the, the, the uh, everyday, the sense of the everyday use of the word hope. When we say we hope, whether we'll be fine tomorrow. But hope in the New Testament sense, is assurance concerning future things. It's assurance. The thing is sure. It is set, settled and fixed. But it is still future, and therefore it's called hope. So we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And this is really remarkable, how Paul, how he makes the leap from justification to glory. But that is, it's, it's logical. If we are justified, there is nothing which God has against us anymore. And that means it will end in glory. We will be with him in his presence. And in chapter 8, verse 30, chapter 8, verse 30, Paul becomes even more explicit. Romans 8, verse 30 And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And we know that. You, you know, if you have been called and justified, you know that. That we were predestined, we didn't know till the day when we came to believe, then we knew it. But we know that we have been called. And hence we know that we have been uh, uh, predestined and we know that we have been justified and thus we know that we have been glorified. Why does Paul say we have been glorified? Because it is settled in God's counsel. It cannot be changed. It is as though it had already happened. So this is the great theme of chapters 5 through 8. The security of the believer. And this is, and mark this, this is a proof of God's righteousness. God reveals his righteousness in keeping the justified ones and carrying them through to glory. If only one justified soul would uh, uh, be lost, God's righteousness would have to be questioned. But that can't happen. God is righteous. And in his righteousness, he will keep the believer in Christ who by his faith has been justified. And it is all through Christ Jesus and Paul, he repeats that again and again. We had it in chapter 5, verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Then we have verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And then verse 11. And not only this, but we also exult in, the, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have it in chapter 5, in verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. We owe all to him. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 7 speaks about the deliverance not only from sin, but also the uh, deliverance from the law. And there we read chapter 7, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord by whom we find deliverance from the law. And how deliverance from the law. And then chapter 8. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are, who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. In him, through him, and with him. Chapter 8, verse 17. If children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we shall also be glorified with him. It is all through him, in him, with him. And then Paul, he ends this uh, uh, third part of Romans with those glorious verses, Romans 8, verses 31 to 39. Let's read these verses. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? It is all with him. He gives us all things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. 
Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, how should he who gave his own son for us, who did not spare his son, not give us, with him give us all things? Justification. He clears us of our guilt. He gives us life, divine life, eternal life. He gives us his own glory. And who can, who can call that into question? Can anyone charge one of or bring a charge against one of God's elect? Well, it could be. Theoretically, it could be. But it can't be. Why not? Because God, the supreme judge, has declared us righteous. God is the one who has declared just. God is the one who justifies. Who will make that to naught? Who will contest God, the supreme judge himself? God has justified us. So that makes the thing absolutely sure. And who is the one who condemns? What could condemn? And many Christians, they have such, sometimes such doubts. But if I would commit such and such sin, would that not bring condemnation over me? Condemnation? And then Paul points to Christ. Look at Christ. He bore the condemnation of sin in our stead, in his suffering and dying. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather was raised, and who is now at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And this is a most important part of God's Working so that his elect, the justified, are being kept. The intercession of his son. This will be our theme tomorrow morning. Christ's high priestly prayer for his own. He intercedes for us. And by his intercession, our faith, as King James Bible says, faileth not. I have prayed for thee that thy faith faileth not, or that thy faith fail not. By his intercession, he sees to it that we remain in the faith, and that our faith is again and again kindled and kept alive. You must have read that wonderful and glorious <laughs> um, parable 
or, 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 uh, so of course the whole thing is an allegory by John Bunyan. Christian, he comes into the house of the instructor and the instructor takes him to a, to, to a, a, a beautiful room, a sitting room, a living room, a drawing room, and there's a fire. And that fire is, is always somebody throws water on it to quench that fire. But the fire always, it burns, it burns. Water is thrown on the fire, but it burns, it burns, it burns. And then the instructor takes Christian to the other side of the wall, and there is someone who always pours oil, oil, oil into the fire. Therefore, the fire cannot be t- uh, uh, quenched. And that is how God works so that the faith which he in our hearts has ignited never will be quenched. It won't happen. And that, hap- and that is the case because he lives evermore to intercede for us. Now we return to Romans 5 verse 10. Romans 5 verse 10. Here it says, Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. This you understand readily. But then it says, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What is that? I always thought we were saved by the death of Christ. How about his life? He lives ever to make intercession for us. And this is the salvation which uh, uh, regards his power to carry us through this world of antagonism, of temptations, of snares. By his life. And now we turn to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews 27, verse 25. Hebrews 7, 25, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save, uh, the Greek says, esto panteles, and that means to the uttermost. Es to pan teles. Pan is all. Teles is from telos, the end. To the very end. And that means he's able to save us through this whole world till the very end. So here the end is AB is not very um, um, accurate. It's not to save forever, but it's to save through till the end. That is the meaning. And for that he lives. He lives ever to make intercession for us. And what is, what is the contents of his prayer? And now we have to turn to Luke 22. I hinted at, at that verse already. Luke 22. Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And you, when once you have turned again, strengthened your brothers. Now, in the English, it is no more visible. In the older English, there was still a difference between, between ye and you and thee and thou. And in verse 31, it is you in the old English sense, plural, accu accusative plural. Accusative plural. Satan has demanded to say, to, to sift whom? You all. You, you all. Plural. But I have prayed for thee, singular. Did he only pray for Peter? Yes. Satan wanted to save them all, but God was, his hand was against him. He was only allowed to save only Peter. God had his purposes. Why only Peter? And then he says, but I have prayed for thee. Thee, Peter. That thy faith fail. His faith, he broke down. His faith broke down, but it did not end. It was not the end of his faith. And that was because the Lord prayed for him that his faith, his faith would not fail. And by his intercession, our faith is kept alive. We know times when we are cast down doubts overwhelm us and where we may be so discouraged that we even don't have strength and wish and will to pray and to seek the face of the Lord. How often have I experienced this? But then again and again, suddenly there was something coming up in me, cropping up in me. And suddenly there was a desire to seek the Lord, to seek his face, to come before him. Again and again and again. And this happens in our lives. And that is his intercession for his beloved one for his elect. He prays that our faith does not end, stop. Because it is true, no unbeliever will come to heaven. And therefore he sees to it that our faith never fails, that it never ends. Through his once and for all, his once and for all given sacrifice, once and for all, a complete salvation has been uh, worked out for us. And through his life, he lives evermore to make intercession for us. We are kept in the faith till we have reached our from him prepared and set goal. Let's give thanks to him. <clears throat> we praise you, our gracious God and Father, for giving us your Son, and in him and through him, you have given us all. You did not spare your son. You gave him for all of us. And with him you give us all. As we also heard in these days, this morning, that you are not going to withhold any good from those who trust thee, who are your own. We praise you for it. We worship you for it. And we thank you, our heavenly, 
eternal, eternally living High Priest, that you intercede for us and that you thus carry us through to the very end. We may trust you. And thus we rejoice and we boast and exult in the hope of the coming glory. We praise you and worship you, our gracious, great and matchless Saviour. Amen.